Welcome to the Educated Fool Podcast. I am the Educated Fool, Dr. Jeffrey Alexander Jr. 2020 has been crazy, right? But one thing that has been refreshing to see is people actually starting to listen. Unfortunately, it took the killing of innocent, unarmed black people in America to get people to start really dissecting equity, diversity, inclusion. So I wanted to have a conversation, so I invited my colleague to come and talk with me, Jerry Staples, who's been doing amazing work. And I think you enjoy the conversation as we talk about his work in diversity, what diversity truly means, also some tips and tricks on how to better inform yourself. We also talked about love as black men, which was unexpected, but a great combo. So sit back and enjoy the Educated Food Podcast. Hey, Jerry, how's it going, man? Hey, how's it going? How's it going? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really excited to kind of chat with you about something I, I'm passionate about. Yeah, man. Like, things have been crazy lately, right? And it was just something I was like, y'all want to talk to somebody about this just because yeah. it seems to be a heightened sense of awareness um, as it relates to, like, diversity and yeah. equity work. And I was like, well, let's let's talk about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because there's a lot of things people think they know and don't really know. Right. <laughs> and I was like, well, from, from my, from my lens um, and somebody yeah. who um, works in higher ed and is always around diversity work, um, I think I know as well, but let me talk to somebody who actually, this is what they do. So yeah. um, can you first tell the people a little bit about yourself? Yeah. I mean, I think um, other than uh, the new normal, the new buzzword for 2020 has been diversity and inclusion. <laughs> uh, so I get that folks are really, really excited about, or at least trying to put the work and effort together to be more inclusive or have more diversity. But um, a little bit about myself, my name is Jerry. Um, I go by Jerry or Jerry Quentin. Um, I go by Quentin at work here, so folks might know me about that. Um, I am a native of Greensboro, North Carolina, did my undergrad and a master's work in North Carolina. I spent some years working in res life and a little diversity work in, in Dallas, Texas, at a couple of institutions there. And then spent some time in Florida and Tampa working in the higher ed sector and in the private higher ed sector too, working for technology, um, mainly doing diversity work, diversity programs, uh, like Safe Zone, African-American programs, retention, that kind of stuff. Um, and then I got an opportunity to come and be the inaugural director um, at my current institution uh, uh, here doing diversity work and kind of helping build everything there off the ground. Yeah. Um, yeah, I spent some time in North Carolina as well a couple a couple years back. Um, I worked at Winston Salem State University. Yeah, so, go Rams. <laughs> yeah, shout out to, shout out to the Rams. Uh, great times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great times. I, I love growing up in North Carolina, but I was so ready to get up out of there. Like I, I spent most of my life there. And so it was nice kind of getting to change the pace. Yeah. Um, I tell my wife, like, if we were to ever leave California, North Carolina would be another place I'll probably give a shot again. I, I actually yeah. enjoy I enjoy living there. So but it's, then a, again, it's a dope place if you can get around some of the southern heritages. Uh-huh. Yeah. But, <laughs> but then again, we look at it like, but nothing beats California, in our opinion. So we might not be leaving again. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I get that. I get that. <laughs> All right. Um, so you mentioned your role a little bit in your intro was was that always a career goal of yours um or if not how did you kind of stumble on doing diversity work yeah you know what honestly it was right so as an undergrad i had a really great opportunity to work in um, our campus's multicultural center as a student employee you know even moved up the ranks as a student leader and about my sophomore year junior year i realized folks were doing this work for a living 
Um, and I thought to myself, oh man, I guess I do want to be somebody on a college campus who can um, really make a difference as it relates to diversity, right? When I kind of got into the idea of student affairs or the idea of working at a college campus, I wanted to make a difference for students who um, looked like me or had similar backgrounds to me. And I think that definition has changed a little bit throughout the years, but I knew I always wanted to do some level of diversity work in the collegiate setting. So when I thought about my current role, it's really exciting because I, I get to take the helm and I get to create it because prior to my arrival, there were no real formal programs around diversity and inclusion on campus. So I'm, I had this really cool opportunity to kind of paint with a blank canvas um, and create um, what I would want to do for my students and based on their needs and really bring together all the experiences that I have um, in the last couple of years in my career profession to create something really new. So it really was a um, kind of serendipitous moment for me, like a moment where just the universe and all things kind of collided in the right ways in the right spaces. All right, awesome. So since you, you do diversity work, there's there's always people trying to tell people in diversity work how to do diversity work yeah. <laughs> um, or what diversity work is. What what right. do people get more so wrong about diversity work? Um, I, I think for me, I, my experiences have helped me to see that diversity is in as much the personal relationships and interpersonal relationships in as much as it is the business of the institution, right? From the from the big picture. And I think when I was a, a lot of people who are maybe passionate about diversity or wanna help, help, help it on campus, really only see it from the lens of like the food, the fun, the celebratory things. You might have some really deep conversations here or there. It really becomes really programmatic, which is not bad, right? It's necessary. Um, from the collegiate standpoint, from the collegiate environment for students to be exposed to various cultures and various backgrounds from a programmatic standpoint. But to me, that really is only about 25% of the work that has to be done, right? So when you think about the big picture of diversity, you're talking about on a college campus, you're talking about the administrative side. So where are HR practices? Do we have inclusive partner benefits? Do we have all the nuts and bolts that would make our campus from an infrastructure standpoint more inclusive? Or at least when there are moments of bias or whatever that may come up, that there's an accurate way to process through that, right? We're talking about diversity of academia, right? So are there faculty members who are from diverse perspectives, diverse backgrounds? and adding to the academy on campus. And then you're talking about, well, how do we make a business case for diversity, which is why I always, I always try to make is if you think about students beyond just the affective and who they are, and of course we love them and we wanna support them, they're actually paying for a service at our institution, right? So we get revenue based on those students that are buying into our services. Um, and when we don't have support services for our students of color, for our LGBTQ plus students, for our Latinx students, for all the students who are traditionally underserved, we are actually as an institution losing revenue. And I hate to think of people, especially in a capitalist society like this, I hate to think of students as revenue, but in a way, how education is set up now, they are, right? And so when people talk about diversity, it's not just about slapping Black History Month on campus and Hispanic Heritage Month on campus and do we have safe zone, is are we being intentional about our efforts to be able to retain as many students as possible. And that means our low uh, SES students who may not have all the access that they needed to in high school to be academically prepared. Is it having a campus environment where staff are 
um, our allies and aren't marginalizing our trans or our non-binary students on campus, right? So it's, it's all those nuanced pieces that help students feel like their college campus is at home, is that place where they can thrive. Um, that's It's beyond just the, do the Black kids get here and, and understand themselves and feel like it's a home here? It's no, are we as an institution doing our best to reinvest into ourselves? Because the reality is that these students eventually turn into alumni. And beyond tuition dollars, alumni giving is another great source of income. But if a Black student, a trans student, a gay student, a marginalized student on campus has a terrible time as an undergrad, which a lot do, and they're just like, I just want to get my degree and be gone, they're not going to want to come back and reinvest into the institution. I think that's what people miss about the total picture of diversity on campus. It's it's more than just one office doing one thing. It really has to be an intentional effort in grading the institution. Sorry if that was like too rambly. <laughs> no, that's perfect. I mean, that that's... That's what frustrates me sometimes, especially yeah. where where I work um, in the lens of when we do diversity work is it's always let's do some type of event. Let's get some students talking. And for right. me, I'm like, that's all cool, but that's performative to me. What, right. what are we doing to transform our institution to be more diverse and equity minded right. um, versus right. let's throw slap together this program or let's throw the student club out there now and we can say, yeah. hey, we now have, you know, a pride club. And I'm like, that's cool. Right. We still have no support pieces for them. Right. Right. And I think Angela Davis said it, but I think I've heard a couple of the times that budgets are moral documents. Right. So we have uh, a new pride club on campus, but if we don't fund them in a way that they can be able to do outreach, do events and programs, then we just slapped, like you said, a performative thing on, and we haven't really created a structure where our queer students, our, our bi students, our you know gay students, et cetera, can really thrive on our college campuses. Yeah, exactly. Um, you, you hit the nail on the head. I, I loved your answer. It was, it was more than I thought uh, <laughs> I was gonna yeah, get I mean, there, but I, I love it. And the way you tie it in, I mean, Sometimes higher ed professionals don't want to hear students as revenue, but they are, um, and they keep our doors open. Correct. That's the reason why so many schools are like, yo, we're opening during COVID, right? It's like, right. that's, that's the only right. way to keep our doors open. <laughs> like, right. we don't make, we're not, even though we make revenue, but we don't make a lot of profit, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's year by year trying to just right. keep afloat. So um, looking at diversity work um, as it relates to revenue actually might help some people even understand it a little bit more um, and maybe even understand the guy who I hope gets voted out in a couple of days. Um, Listen, and, knock on wood. <laughs> right, because I don't even think he sees it as revenue. And if he did, he probably wouldn't put in that executive order. And speaking of, you know, him stopping diversity work, how's that impacted you at all um, since, you know, he was like, stop it. Well, you know, I, interesting. I would say, I think the current educational system in the United States absolutely sees students as revenue. They only, however, value typically white, cis, hetero, middle-class students as the, the valuable resources for them, right? Um, in terms of how the current administration is impacting my work, um, it, I'm gonna be honest, it, it has me on edge, right? So one of my key roles on campus is to help faculty and staff um, you know, understand diversity, right? And so one of the things that has, it, it's, it's a weird juxtaposition, right? Because at the beginning of the summer, we had, you know, all this uh, protest and civil unrest and this national conversation around Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and the countless number of names who have been killed senselessly to white supremacy, right? The big, the big, uh, the big picture, right? And so everyone was on board about, okay, we need to do mandatory diversity trainings. We need to have this conversation on our campuses 
XYZ, right? So now it's like, well, let's look to the diversity folks on campus who are the experts, right? So all summer I've been working, working with the pre uh, my current president, different uh, people on campus as this commission. And then come September, we hear from the administration that, oh, actually, uh, we have a, a guideline. These <laughs> unfounded. That's that's the word I'm going to use. I, listen, I'm trying to be about best behavior, okay? These unfounded kind of guidelines around what diversity and inclusion can look like, right? And so it, to me, it, it I see it as a direct opposition. I see it not to be too biblical. I see it as a Goliath, right? But it, in my mind, that's nothing that can't be toppled down. It's just something that we as institutions have to be clever about, A, pushing back on, right? I think, I think, the, the time of the passive diversity or the, the kind of laissez-faire approach to diversity really has to come to an end because there's a concerted, consistent, pervasive effort to uh, increase the gap for marginalized communities or increase the gap for people who may not fit what we all have been taught the American dream should go to, right? And so for me, it's, it's nerve wracking, right? To, to think that um, after this election that the attorney general will have the authority to come to our campus and uh, review all of our documentation work that I have put research into, time into, that my colleagues and peers have put their academic research into, to now say, oh, because we disagree with it, that you can no longer teach about it. That, that's a scary, slippery slope for me, particularly for, um, and I think academia has to kind of wake up to this because we've hidden behind this faux wall of academic freedom, thinking that, you know, we're untouchable. And the reality is, we're already being shaken and we just don't know it. Yeah, I'm going to move us away from that. Let's get back to some, <laughs> please, please some, <laughs> some things we enjoy because, yes, it is stress inducing. Um, yes. Just thinking about the prospect of another four years. <laughs> um, what do you enjoy most about diversity work? Like, what is it that that keeps you going? What is what keeps you passionate about the work? Because there is there's a lot of minutia around it. And a lot of people, yeah. once again, as we see, like try to stop that work. So yeah, what 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 do you enjoy about it? And what keeps you passionate about it? Yeah, you know, I think for me, it shifted. Like I said, when I first got into the field, I really had this mindset of, oh, I want to make a difference for people who look like me. And I think that was really kind of top oriented. I wanted to be in a position of power, a chief diversity officer or a president or vice president, whatever, um, and doing diversity work and trying to work with the infrastructure of the institution to be more inclusive. But now I find it really my work becomes more rewarding when I have those one-on-one -on -one conversations with students. Like, what if I feel like I can make a difference in just one student's life who looks like me? I think about, like, I, have, I started this African-American male mentoring program on our campus, um, and I just think about, I reframe what I, what I said earlier when I said, oh, I want to help people who look like me, right? Which includes Black men who are low SES, right, who are first gen, and kind of think of it more critically in that way. And I, I never really put two and two when I was in my 20s that I was an administrator, I was a black administrator for my students. But I see that now more and more. Um, I, you know, I had a student kind of when I left the previous institution, pull me to the side and say something really I, I had never expected, wanted or heard before. But he said something to the fact that he appreciated me being his life because I was like a pseudo father figure for him. And I was like, I'm like 25, 28. How can I be a father figure? First of all, I'm not that old, right? But when I began to realize that, you know, just like I was looking at, you know, my director of multicultural affairs and, and the folks, the black folks on campus when I was an undergrad, they were looking to me. Um, and then once I really kind of realized that and internalized that more, that became my day to day work. That helped me to get through 
the BS or the minutia of politics or the bureaucracy that higher ed can be, because I know if I can stop one or two or five of my students on campus and really connect with them, that that's going to encourage them to graduate and persist. That's the most important work to me. So that that what brings me joy when they figure out, like I had a student who came into my office who had never applied for a job before, right, and didn't really know how to work through it. And having them come in and feeling kind of deflated and feeling defeated and then walk out feeling more confident with more knowledge, that to me, that just warms my heart. That just melts my little Grinch heart. And uh, um, it, it really makes it makes it worthwhile, you know? Yeah. It's funny because, I mean, we, we have those epiphany moments where we're like, yo, I'm not that much older than you. But then you kind of think yeah. about it, just how things change in just a few years. You'd be like, yo, this is, we're yeah. lifetimes apart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I remember I was talking to a student and that's when I, it hit me like, yo, I graduated. Like I was a freshman like 10 years ago. Like I'm yeah. actually, you were 10, right? <laughs> like, right. <laughs> um, so it does, it, like, even though I'm not old in the eyes of you, I, I am. I um, am. Right. Right. And that, and I think that was, I didn't really put two and two together until I thought about my mentor, who's like a brother to yeah. me now. Mm. When he was the director of res ed, when I was a freshman, he was mm. only in his, like his early thirties, but like yeah. for me, you know, seemed like he was much older. Right. right. It seemed like he he was something you can never ascribe to be like, what? You you have a whole job and you like have a house and a whole family. What? How does that happen? Yeah. Right. And naturally, he really wasn't that much older than me. Um, so right, yeah. it's it's interesting. So when students I, it does take me back a little bit when students say things like that. Right. right. And but it does. It, it it keeps you going in the job when we dealing with yeah. all the minutia is definitely my favorite part of working in higher ed, even yeah. though as I ascend um, in the profession, you move like yeah. further and further away from students. <laughs> right. Um, and you got to find these pieces, right? It's like, no, I'll be the club advisor. No, definitely. Right. I got time. And right. You realize you don't have time, but, you, <laughs> but it's your, you want to be um, right. that you impact. That like I, you want that connection. Like I love making um, changes on the back end as an administrator that's that's directly impacting you you might not know that like i love doing that but i also love just having a conversation with you um, right so the world is ever evolving and changing as you mentioned right the the census killing of um black people in our country um brought a sense of awareness to to some people who was trying to ignore it right even recently right walter wallace jr like another one right um, right so now that there's like this heightened sense of awareness, um, how how do you um, where I'm trying to. So we're black men and we, we love <laughs> yeah. diversity work. Right. Yeah. And we're always tapped to do diversity work, even if it's in our title description or not. We're tapped to do that. So how do you guide others um, to to learn more and to educate themselves more? Or do you feel the obligation that some put on us to, to educate yeah. others and versus having them go off and do their own. Cause I'm kind of, I'm on both sides of the fence when it comes to like, no, do your own research. Cause then yeah. you get people who stumble upon like Umar Johnson. I'm like, no, no, right. not, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so, I, so where do you stand on that and how do you yeah, guide so people? I think if I wasn't a director of like a diversity department or multicultural affairs department, my default answer would be absolutely go research yourself or here's a little nugget and then go find it for yourself. I think because it's my job, I tell myself, you get paid to do this. 
Um, and so because I get paid to do it, it feels honestly more validating, right? It's just like, okay, at least you're paying me for my knowledge. You're paying me for my resources, my expertise, my time, and um, my, my, my years. I think now I'm getting to this space where my job is, is seated in, multi, in uh, student affairs, but my reach has become much more broader across campus. And so what I'm finding now is people who would not necessarily have any connections with student life, student affairs, or my, my office are reaching out and saying, can you give me advice on this particular area? Which I don't mind, but also I get this back to my question of, am I getting paid to do this, right? Because am I getting paid to consult faculty on how to make their classes more inclusive? Because it's not in my job description. So am I doing that because I want to make the world a better place? Yes. But I also am really much more intentional these days about setting my limits, right? And, and saying, this is my boundary or tying in other folks who can have the conversation. So I built some really strong partnerships with folks in academic affairs where at least I, if I have to be a part of the conversation, it's not on me to keep the conversation going or carry it in order to have a, 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 a ends meet. Whereas I, I feel like at other institutions, other opportunities, it was my actual job, and then because I was doing diversity work and everybody wants to now understand more about it, I have to educate you. And now it's like, no, there's there are plenty of people who are knowledgeable. There are plenty of opportunities. And I don't mean this really. I think folks are just lazy, <laughs> right? I think folks, folks want the easy way out. What I appreciate about even my campus leadership now is when um, all the protests you know, kind of erupted over the summer, which I was glad to see because I think it, it it forced our country to really face it head on, right? I think the the providence of being working remote because of the global pandemic and then having such a visible, which I mean, after Eric Gardner, I don't, I don't, I know for black people, Eric, you know, say for black people, Emmett Till was the was the line, right? Um, and you would think that Eric Gardner, where we all saw him being murdered on tape with an illegal chokehold move, right? You would think by by now it wouldn't have taken up George Floyd to make the make this conversation happen. What I least appreciate about campus leadership at my current institution is that they didn't ask me to shoulder that burden any more um, than I had to, right? So they were doing their own book clubs, they were reading White Fragility, they were reading anti-racist work without me having to say, let me explain to you why there are people uh, in the streets protesting. Um, and so I, I think you have to find a, a balance between here's my limit, here's my expertise, and because I'm an expert, because I have seven years post-master's experience, pay me for that, right? And, and I'm an expert in my field in the, as it relates to diversity and inclusion. I've had measured success at every institution I've gone to. And so I think I found myself in this place more where I don't see myself or diversity even as the redheaded stepchild, for lack of better words. I see it as the very thing that's going to keep our institutions from embarrassing themselves. And so the more that you can empower me and other people to do the work that we're doing, the better off our institution is going to be in the long run. But it's a balance. It's, it's, a, it's a balance between do I have the energy to put up with your nonsense today or do I, <laughs> do I ignore your email until the appropriate 48-hour response window? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I usually ignore the email and, and wait for a while <laughs> because yeah, um, like I said, it is, it is, it is that balance, right? It's, and it's also, I guess for me, I, my decision is based on my relationship with you, right? Correct. Awesome. Um, yeah. Because it's like, all right, I can engage you in conversation and it'll go, it'll go. Okay. And we can, we can have this debate. We can have this conversation or like, I trust you enough to, if I tell you to go research and I give you a couple nuggets, you'll, you'll, go down the right path. Um, yeah. And then there's others that's like, you're just going to search for things that already confirm what you believe. Right. right. 
And unfortunately, we got a lot of faculty like that who love to just give you stuff to confirm their beliefs. Right. Um, so you mentioned some books because books been flying off the shelves lately um, as it relates to, you know, diversity work, like white fragility, um, anti-racist books, which you couldn't find for like the first two months after everything happened. Yeah. Um, what what do you read or what informs your work? How do you how do you stay fresh? How do you stay up to date? Um, I I do a, a mixed media, right? <laughs> and I, I say that because a lot of times I get um, new concepts rather from social media, right? From Twitter, I think Twitter is a really educational space, or even Tumblr, right? To say I have this new idea, this concept, and then I'll do what I'll do is I'll say, oh, the kids are talking about this. Well, let me go read up on it some more, right? And so I think for me, it's always trying to keep a pulse on what the conversation is um, in a large standpoint, or I might see an article on CNN, or I might see uh, something on higher And based on those current conversations, I'll do more research about what's the bigger picture at play here. Um, and so I, I find it to be really situational. That's that's how I kind of stay on top of it. I follow scholar. And the other thing is the internet has, in a time where time is valuable, we don't always have a lot of time to do things. Like podcasts have been invulnerable, invaluable to me rather. Um, like being able to listen to them on a run or listen to them on, uh, you know, in between breaks, or whatever, it gives me an opportunity to, again, get a starting point to go and find my own research and learn more. You know, following Mark Lamont Hill or, um, you know, some of the other kind of great people who are doing this work. Um, yeah. 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 Mark, Mark Lamont Hill. He actually even got me interested in like, all right, I'm, I'm going to start potting because his coffee and yeah. books pot is, is amazing. And, and he's someone I definitely follow. Um, and especially because, you know, he's in higher ed as well. Um, yeah. He's well informed. Um, so I was like, so yeah, definitely. Uh, Twitter, I think Twitter is underrated in that regard. So many yeah. people go on Twitter just for like the fun stuff or even just the negativity, but the, the nuggets, <laughs> yeah, the nonsense, right? Sometimes you need it, <laughs> but there's some, there's some great nuggets. And I mean, that's how I was able to find Mark Lamont Hill. Um, I follow Eric Dyson because he's like, if yeah. I was a teacher, like that's who I want to be. Like I want to be. Yeah. Eric Dyson. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna shift a little bit here in, in our final couple minutes I have with you. Um, okay. because we talk a lot about diversity work and and especially times like this, it could be draining, right? So yeah. um when you take a break from it, like what what is it that you do? What do you enjoy? Let me let me learn a little bit more about Jerry. Like what do you uh, do yeah, yeah. to take a break and stay sane? Um I not not to sound too hotepish, right? <laughs> but I have really tried to kind of tap into some more um, just kind of earthy like things, right? So I picked up gardening and I had no idea how much I would enjoy doing that. But I feel a deeper sense of connection to my grandparents who had home gardens in their home, right? And so for me, it's about being reconnected and reinvested into where I come from that helps to reinvigorate me to where I'm going. Um, and, and, and really... Um, also pushing myself beyond kind of my limits of what I understand or what I'm comfortable in, in the sense of I, before probably this year, I wouldn't have considered myself an abolitionist, right? Um, and so for me, kind of hearing people talk about the prison, uh, 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 preschool, the prison pipeline, and then prison industrial complex, I knew those were things that I, I would never consider myself as a person who would say, let's get rid of prisons, right? Or let's do away with our current justice system. Um, and I think it's those moments where I find new passion areas that reinvigorate me to other passion areas because I see it as all connected. Like one of the things I teach a class, um, and I, I'm really excited to be able to teach it next semester about uh, social injustice and racism. And one of the things I, I probably say to my students every class is racism 
racism is literally everywhere. There's not a single fabric of the United States global society that doesn't have an element of racism labeled and like ingrained in it, right? And so for me, when I find a new area that I can connect to, it's like, oh, this makes sense because it's over here. And so it kind of reinvigorates me back into an old area that I might feel burned out in because I can say, okay, if we can, if we can fix this over here, it'll maybe hopefully make this a little bit easier over here too. Uh, I'm going to start going back to two things. One, okay. I, I'm doing my own research now as an abolitionist, right? Because mm-hmm. when I first heard it, like most people, it's jarring, right? Yeah. And and you immediately react to like, oh, no, we can't get rid of these yeah. systems, right? And for me, I struggle with that because I'm like, I think we actually need prisons, right? Even though I've had, mm-hmm. you know, family in the prison system who I felt um, weren't, weren't, it wasn't just, right? They, they're not being right. rehabilitated. They're coming back out. They haven't learned anything. So right. I start, you know, it challenges the, how you were kind of brainwashed into thinking. Right. right? We're indoctrinated. Yeah. We're indoctrinated, right? Like this, this has to be in place. Um, even yeah. the whole, you know, defund or abolish the police. Like when I heard that, I was like, Whoa, wait a minute. Yeah. Uh, especially now. Cause I got a little bit of money. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> Yeah, what am I now? <laughs> what then? What do we replace them with? What is this, right? And it, it's really taken me some time to really dive into um, to the readings and to people who are way brighter than me and the work that they've been doing. Um, have you been following Colin Kaepernick's um, abolish? Uh, um, it's like an abolitionist post. He has like a ton of different articles from. No, from not not him specifically, writers. but I, I'm sure I've come across some of the stuff. So I need to check it out then. But yeah, you're right. It's it's, it's a hard concept to kind of. Except when, you, when you've been raised to believe, you know, that police officers are here to protect the, you know, the community, protect and serve, and we got to keep our community safe from the dangerous criminals. And then you realize that our society has criminalized even the most trivial things. Um, and what, and, and even the fact, it blew my mind, Ben and Jerry's has this new podcast based on, um, I think the, uh, the sixteen seventeen project maybe um, about who we are and talking about you know the evolution of race in the country, and when you think about all the laws that were created to make being black illegal or whatever form of blackness illegal so that we could be back in in, in a form of slavery, that to me when it's like all right is is this quote unquote good protecting my community um, outweighing you know the bad the clear and evident bad the fact it's like two or three times the number of black men or people in prison than there were slaves, right? That that to me is wow. Mm-hmm. Or the fact that like even, um, and I'm sure you're probably more aware of this. I read an article about how the fires in California, there were prisons or inmates who were fighting the fires and were getting out. And because they had a, a felony or had a, a whatever um, on their charges, they couldn't even come out and then become firefighters. And so, or, or even having the right to vote right here. Back when I lived in Florida, I was really excited to be able to kind of be a part of the, the election process where we got to restore the voting rights back to, you know, former felons. And it's like, to me, it's like, well, why, if we really believe that, you know, being in prison is a, is a place for reform, why aren't people coming out reformed? Oh, they're not coming out reformed because you can make money off of them, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that a lot of our prisons are privatized, we are making money off of it. And that, that I can't get behind. And that's what kind of fueled my fire to start asking those questions of like, what do you mean? Why, why is this illegal? Like, why why was crack, you know, uh, charged differently than cocaine, right? Or or why why was the Bronx, you know, heavily uh, policed for, you know, weed and marijuana, but, you know, not 
uh, the upper uh, upper east side you know what i'm saying or wherever fancy people live in new york I haven't been there, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no definitely and, and it it took me putting into you know real life examples to for me to start kind of understanding it and seeing it from that lens the institution that I, the college that i work now we we have um a prison program where mm-hmm. um and i saw i went to a graduation actually because we have a culinary program in the prison yeah. and right. the prisoners go out and they cook for the firefighters when there's when there's wildfires and i was like oh that's awesome that's great but then once again you think about it when they come out they're not going to they're not a sous chef at ruth's chris right right right. they're they're only going to be allowed to to shake fries somewhere and it's just like right and the city gets to cut city gets to cut a a bottom line because they don't have to pay they they get to pay slave labor to have prisoners come and cook for you know mm-hmm. state people, but not necessarily being like again if they got out and had their own culinary business, have to pay them more full price. You know what I'm saying? That yeah. that kind of stuff to me is like ah, this is gross. Like <laughs> this is mm-hmm. gross, folks. Like on so many other ways, you know, or yeah. even the, the why people go to go or get you know arrested or charged. You know, think about the neighborhoods that don't have access to food and resources. Like if if Crime, crimes and needs shouldn't be crimes. There should be no need, right? If we got rid of the need, there wouldn't be crimes of need. And then we could think about differently. How do we have restorative justice for when people, you know, you know, killed or murdered, the higher level kind of criminal things? But we're we're packing our prisons with with bodies over the most trivial things, mm-hmm. in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. Have you ever seen things? Yeah. Have you ever seen Michael Moore's um, "Where to Invade Next"? I think so. Yeah, so it sounds he, familiar. Yeah, he has a you know, it's like a documentary piece, and he, he's going yeah. to all these places that is not America, and mm. they took American ideals, but they've actually implemented them. Um, mm. And he talked. I can't remember where it's at, but there's a prison where there's and there's like no bars, like they're they're treated as humans, right? And they're truly feeling like they're rehabilitating people, and and that's yeah. an ideal that we yeah. started here in America, but we don't do it. Um, right. So. It's, it's, it's a great doc. It's a great doc. I mean, it, okay. he goes through like maternity and paternity leave um, where we don't get that here in the U.S., but um, Europe, they get like 36 weeks or something crazy to be like right. actually raise their children <laughs> and right. not have to force to go back to work. So right. the, the second thing I want to touch on, what are you planning? Because my wife is planning crazy right now. So I want to know what is it that that you're gardening? Oh, so I am waiting on some bell peppers to finish growing. I got a couple who are like midway through the, the final kind of form. So I'm really excited about them. And then um, I've got some turnip greens because I'm country uh, <laughs> growing too. And then I've, I've got some lavender plant that I'm trying to grow uh, just to kind of have some more kind of fresh smelling flowers in the house. And then I, I got to figure out some other winter winter vegetables to try to plant. Mm-hmm. Now, uh you gotta have greens. Like right, I'm, I'm from I'm from California, and we grow greens. Like my mom got greens in her backyard. So like, oh wow, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got you got you gotta have greens. I mean, right. It's, it's only right. All right. So the last one that uh, last question I don't want to ask you, and I don't even think you prepared for it. But as I was doing some deep diving research for for this pod, I saw you pose. You didn't even pose a question. You made a statement. On, okay. on Facebook, and I want to I want to dive into this a little bit. Okay, what did I say? What did I put on Al Gore's internet? Hopefully, I don't embarrass myself. <laughs> so, I'm gonna give it. I'm just gonna give one name and see if you remember your post. I'm gonna say Overton. Okay. 
Uh, okay. <laughs> I don't remember it, but I, I want it's, it's good. I, I want to hear it. I want to hear it. <laughs> so for those who don't know what I'm about to get into, um, Jerry made a profound statement, Sinclair and Overton over Maxine and Kyle. Yes. All day, every day. All day, every day. I always thought so, but I want to hear what made you come to this realization that Sinclair and Overton are by far a couple goals. Well, I think because I, so I'll, I'll be honest, Max and Kyle, those are my, like, after Khadijah and Scooter, like, Maxine and Kyle were, were the ones, right? But I, re- at, as an adult, I realized how toxic they are, right? This, and I think for a lot of times, I, I think we're taught this, that love has to be this fiery thing all the time, right? And I think we saw that with, with Max and Kyle, like when they would go sneak off and do all these kinds of things um, to be together and it was nice and it was hot. And then I realized that is exhausting and it's trash, right? They was sneaking around trying to be together. They was always backbiting and arguing with one another and it was love and it was passionate, but it was it was tiring. I think we saw that play out, right? We saw them kind of get to this place where it was like, well, this, this headbutting is not fun anymore. And so for me, I started realizing that Overton and Sinclair really were the, the goals. They were always communicating with one another. They didn't try to change one another. They appreciated one another for who they were. Um, and they supported each other um, in ways that made the other feel appreciated for who they were. And then they had their own lives, right? So Sinclair was you know, working and trying to be a movie star and, and Overton was happy being a building manager. And so it didn't feel like they had to be up each other's, you know, spaces all the time. It just felt like a really, really healthy dynamic. So now in my life and in my partnership with the person I'm in love with now, it's like, nah, we, we got Sinclair and Overton over here and we over here playing in the garden and walking our dogs and doing the stupid stuff that Sinclair and Overton were doing and we're happy. And that to me is healthy. Like I, I'm trying to protect my peace in the real way. <laughs> right. And it's that like when growing up watching it, I was like, yo, that's a corny relationship right it's like, corny they like look corny right like it's corny that's not real like you can't right. have that like you have Maxine and Jean right where there's there's always arguments there's there's bickering there the playful back and forth it really turned into real problems in their relationship and things that they never actually even discussed okay. or tried to fix right because that's kept it exciting that's what their relationship was based and driven on right, right. so when I saw that I was like oh it's always been that like it's, it's definitely Sinclair um, and Overton. Um, and, and the pieces, I remember one episode um, when Sinclair's coworker like kissed her, right? Mm-hmm. And she immediately, like she's going back and forth, like, do I tell him? And of course, yeah. everyone else is like, definitely don't, nah, right? Don't tell him. But Sinclair being her own person, because she's always her own person, right. she was like, no, I'm gonna tell him. This is what I love. We built our relationship on trust. And like they, even though Overton was hurt, they had a conversation about it and they worked through it together as a couple and right. made them stronger. And right. when I, as I got, you know, as I'm married now, it's one of those things where it's like, we have to have these difficult conversations. Right. right? You got to have the truth. Cause if you don't have nothing else, everything, and, and this is a hard lesson. I think we as men, so I'm glad that we to have this conversation with you. Cause I don't, I don't think we teach men, particularly black men, how to be healthy in relationships. And what I had to learn the hard way was that every lie you tell creates a gap between you and your partner, right? And so the more that you, and the more that time goes on, the bigger that gap gets. Um, and so you have to have truth, honesty, and communication and vulnerability. Otherwise, it's, it's going to fall apart because you're building a, a fake kind of life. And what, what sucks is we build this kind of 
fakeness because we haven't told the truth. We haven't been as vulnerable as we can. When that chink comes in the armor and everything we've built on top of it has fallen apart, we sit around looking dumb because we don't understand why it fell apart. It fell apart because we weren't willing to be vulnerable and be honest and being truthful and communicative. And I think that's what we saw in Sinclair and Overton, to your point, right? It, you know, even when, you know, Overton thought Sinclair was being a little over the top or a little dramatic or a little out there, he's like, babe, this is cool, but let's think about it differently, right? And so I think that that's what makes relationships strong. And that's why I appreciate them more than anything now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my dad laughs when I tell him, but I'm like, yo, you taught me how to be a great husband. Cause you were such yeah. a bad one. Oh like, wow, it's like that sometimes. <laughs> and he was like, "What? Why?" I'm like, "Because I I saw what not to do, right? Mm-hmm. I saw how 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 lying um, damaged the, your marriage and your relationships. Right. Um, not being open, not being right. able to express when you're feeling hurt or when you're just confused. Um, right. And those are things that I try not to do uh, because I saw that it didn't work for you." Um, right. so, and he's like, I guess that makes sense, but I don't like the way you say it. <laughs> it's like, but it's true. You're, it's so, the truth. <laughs> you're so terrible at relationships. You help me be a better man in mine. And I appreciate that. I like, I, I really right. do. Um, and then there was one thing I wanted to say, but I forgot it always. Right. <laughs> I promise it was a gym. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, man, but thank yeah. you. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was like, yeah. I, I mean, and even I would say even with that, like, I mean, that's, that's a hard truth. I'm sure your dad had to to hear, and hopefully that brought y'all closer together. But uh, you, you got to have honesty, otherwise, what we doing? We faking it. And if you, you, I think about, and I don't, I don't mean this kind of uh, haphazardly. Like I think about going to work. Right, we spend forty plus hours a week at work. We have some really good relationships there, but most of them are pretty surface because it's work, right? Um, so we spend at least forty to fifty hours of our week being on the verge of like fake, or you know, just kind of like not as deep as we could. Why would I want to come home and and pretend to fake the funk with someone that I have to split a bill and rent with, right? <laughs> uh, or, or have to build a life with? Like I, I'd rather be able to, if I can't be myself, I want to be myself at home with the person I love, and that means being completely honestly me, and I want that in a partner too. And so, yeah, as as corny as Sinclair and Overton look and are, and they still are to me in a lot of ways, like the nicknames. I think I, it's cute, but it's corny. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but it's it's good and it feels good. So, and it's, it can last. So, yeah. Man. Yeah. And I mean, that's the hard part with relationships. It's, I mean, it is being vulnerable and opening up. I mean, especially as, you know, a black man where I was taught not to be vulnerable. Right. Right. Like you have to be this solid rock. You have to be strong. You can't show emotions, um, especially growing up in Compton. It's like you show weakness can get you killed. Like that's, that's right. literally was like our mantra. Right. Like you can't show weakness, weakness can get you killed out here. And then you bring that into a relationship. And I couldn't understand for the life of me why at least with my wife early on in our relationship, it was so hard. Um, mm. It's because I wasn't being vulnerable, right? When something would bother me, I just wouldn't show emotion. Um, yeah. So now I remember what I was going to talk about. This conversation yeah. and being open and honest and lying, like that's why on Twitter, when like COVID first started happening, you start seeing like yeah. all these hashtags and memes about like relationships falling apart. It's because right. now you're stuck in the house <laughs> with, each other. with each other and y'all don't even know each other. Right. Right. Y'all have probably been dating for years, but because of all the of not truly being your full self and you only have to see that person every couple of hours because you're at work all day. Right. Now you stuck sheltered in place. <laughs> and, right. And you're like, who is this person I'm with? And and I'm I'm interested to see like what divorce rates look like coming out of COVID. Um, oh, because yeah. 
because yeah, like I'm with my wife way more than I've ever been. <laughs> but, right, right. And I was gonna say too, like kind of tying it back to what we were talking about earlier, why I am so passionate about my work now, what I do now, even connecting with those guys, is because I I'm trying to it, it have these kinds of conversations with them in, in these kinds of ways because I didn't have those conversations, or if I did, they were very limited. And I think it's important for black men to see other black men talking about relationships, right? Like I um I was talking to my best friend and we were just talking about dating relationships in general. He he's married and I was sharing where I'm at in my relationship. And he was like, man, I'm genuinely happy for you. And I was like, it blew my mind for a moment. I was like, oh, wow. We as other men really should be happy about each other, you know, being fathers. You know, I remember seeing my neighbor um, who just had a a baby girl. And I I remember him coming home like the first week. And I I just encouraged him. I don't have kids. I don't know him like that. But I saw a black man in his kid's life. And I wanted to let him know that it was important that he stay there and that that someone sees that outside of his family. And so now I'm kind of in this mindset, well, how can I encourage black men to be whole and healthy? Because for so long, our uncles and fathers and cousins and them, you know, have been products of the hardness of our world. And I'm just trying to envision a world where black men don't have to be tough, right? Don't have to not show weakness in order to, to stay alive. It's like, nah, let's, let's stop making the world such a dangerous place for black men, but also let's start holding men accountable and black men accountable and teaching them how to be better partners, how to be better friends, how to be better educators, how to be better leaders. Because the potential is there, right? They're doing it. I see this every day in, in the work that I work with my students. It's there. The potential is there. The knowledge is there. The, the weakness is all there. They're just unmolded. And we have to make the investment to mold back into our students. It, otherwise, it's going to repeat the cycle, you know what I mean? In those, in those ways yeah it's what i tell my little brother like dog you you are so much smarter than me and you don't even know it mm-hmm. right but you apply it to the environment that you're in yeah right and it wasn't until i got out of that environment when i was able to really understand and grasp and, and apply what i learned growing up in la to a college right while i was yeah. in college now even in my career i still bring those things with me i'm um, like yeah. and you can do the same thing but it's getting him to to see and get past of just the everyday yeah just making it through um yeah and that's what i'm that's why i i do the work that i do right that's right you know my job is admissions and recruitment it's let me let me show you something else there's another way we can go about doing this um so thank you so much man for for taking time out to to sit and and chat with me i I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation um I enjoy talking to people that are brighter than me in topics. And once again, diversity is my passion. Um, and yeah. I'm, I'm always striving to learn. And, and I'm definitely going to take some of these nuggets that you gave. Um, so I want to thank you again. If yeah. you want to be found, you can give a shout out to, to your socials now. If not, we can edit that out. <laughs> Ooh, yes, um, I can be found on Instagram at, um, at colors in orange. Yes. C-O-L-O-R-S-A-N-G-E. That's what I write. Hopefully. <laughs> um, I'll, sp- I'll, I'll spell it out in, in my outro. I got you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Man, I, I had a blast. I'm, I'm really excited for you and your platform too. Like I, I love a, a chance to run my mouth and I, I'm, I'm glad to be able to share this with you. So thanks for having me. All right. Awesome, man. And enjoy your weekend and enjoy Same. your day off. Um, <laughs> Same to you. Enjoy your, enjoy your time off. Get rest. Uh, uh, as I say, or as I try to do, don't check your email, get it off your phone. You know what I'm saying? Like, like unplug because 
the Armageddon is here. That's why I tell people. I, instead of saying, <laughs> how's your day going? I ask people, um, how is Armageddon treating you? Is it treating you well? How can I assist? <laughs> Definitely. And that's that's a tip for everyone. I, I told my staff, I'm deleting it. I'm not even just cutting off notifications. I'm yeah. deleting it off my phone. Because even with notifications off, I still might be tempted to open up that app. So, so check it. Right. Delete it. When you go on break, <laughs> go on break. Right. Right, right, right. All right, man. And we are. All right, man. I'll see you. Thank you. And that's it. Another episode of the Educated Food Podcast. I would like to thank Jerry for taking some time out to drop some knowledge on us. I mean, that's the point of the Educated Food Podcast, to learn something. So I hope you learned something today. You can give Jerry a follow on Instagram at Colors in Orange. C-O-L-O-R-S-I-N-O-R-A-N-G-E. Colors in Orange on Instagram. You can find me on Twitter, The Educated Fool. That's T-H-E. You know the rest. <laughs> For the pod, go ahead, rate me, give me five stars, like me, review me, and come back next week. If you don't like me, still come back next week. I'm out.